Do you mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, including the killing jar. I'd take him to the doctor. You're listening to a podcast. Suddenly, you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. Which podcast? It doesn't matter. Just answer the questions, please. Which podcast? Um, now playing the movie review podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Brock. The movie series being reviewed is the Philip K. Dick series with such classic films as Blade Runner, Total Recall, and Minority Report. I go to nowplayingpodcast.com every Friday to download a new episode of the series. You hear a warning that these podcasts will be full of spoilers. I hit pause, watch the movie, and then listen to the podcast. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page photo of a naked woman. Shh, with the questions. The podcast is starting. Today we're talking about Radio Free Albemuth, starring Jonathan Scarf, Shay Wingham, Alanis Morissette, Catherine Winnick, Scott Wilson, and directed by John Allen Simon. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. This is Stuart. And this is Jacob. And guys, grass makes me super horny. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you got a lot of it. You might need it for this trippy-ass movie. Trippy-ass movie? Don't you think it's ironic when you're asked to act in a movie and you can't act? She should write a song about it. Yeah, Alanis Morissette. I gotta say, if this movie has some identifiable feature, we've never talked about her before. So maybe in that way, I'm grateful that Radio Free Albemuth is the last Philip K. Dick project we're going to talk about before the Blade Runner sequel. It's not the only Philip K. Dick project that people have been consuming. I do want to point out... He's been pretty big on TV and streaming. Minority Report was a Fox TV series for about eight episodes. I don't know if you guys saw any of that. Nope. Man in the High Castles doing pretty well in Amazon. It's about an alternative world where the Nazis won the war. Oh, isn't that this film? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, we'll talk about it. And then apparently it's about to debut. There's a 10-part anthology series, kind of like a Twilight Zone, called Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Brian Cranston's going to be in it. Timothy Spall. Hopefully he's got a better wig than Total Recall. What's up? (laughs) But they're going to take all his short stories. God knows Philip K. Dick wrote a whole bunch, and many of them have never been adapted. That's what they're going to try to tackle on there. Philip K. Dick has stayed with us. But I don't believe this is the project that had people wanting to see him on the big screen. A posthumous story published after his death? I hadn't even heard of this one. Yeah, I hadn't either. I believe it's part of a trilogy, right? Well, okay. (laughs) How how best to summarize this? First of all, let's just talk about how awful this title is. We all agree. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I don't even know how to say it. I'm glad I didn't have to say it out loud. I can't say it. I can't even say it. Radio Free Albemuth is something I don't know what it is, and I don't even want to watch it, right? Like instantly. Everyone goes, I don't want to see that movie. I can't say it. I don't want to see it. To be fair, they didn't want to call it that. They wanted to call it Valus. And the problem was Philip K. Dick wrote a novel called Valus, and he wrote that book after the book that this movie was based on was written. This novel was known as Valus System A, and it was not published. He wrote it in 1976 and took it to his publisher, and they said, you know what, why don't you work on it? And two years later, he released something called Valus that took some of these elements 
and stuck it into a different story. But when Philip K. Dick died and people thought, oh, Blade Runner's kind of a cult hit, maybe we can exploit his newfound celebrity, there was some interest in publishing this unproduced manuscript. And they said, well, we can't call it Velas System A. Everyone knows Velas. Why don't we call it Radio Free Albemuth? And so I think the fact that it was Philip K. Dick's quote-unquote last novel was the selling point. It's certainly not this title and maybe not even this plot. Although when I did my research, and you can join me over at Books and Nachos, I'll talk about this much more extensively there. The shock is much of this is not science fiction. Much of this is life as Philip K. Dick lived it. He believes he was contacted by aliens. See, that's weird because I got a real left behind vibe. I, I don't know. I've never read those books, but I've seen both the Kirk Cameron and Nicolas Cage version. This feels weirdly religious. Like we're going to find out the Phil in this movie. His stuff is being ghostwritten to make him more conservative. And I feel like that has actually happened with this story. Yeah. Religious is definitely how it, it was experienced. I think Philip K. Dick, let's just kind of walk through his history In the 50s, he was a science fiction writer published in magazines, but that was disreputable. Like, to be a cool science fiction writer in the scheme of things wasn't that profitable, wasn't that cool. And then in the 60s, he got mixed up in drugs. By the 70s, he was having some problems. He had had a suicide attempt, lots of failed marriages. And then, yeah, maybe if you do enough acid, you believe Valus is talking to you. And so he had all of these experiences he couldn't explain through rational means, and he thought, maybe, yes, God is contacting me, beaming these thoughts into my head from a satellite. It sounds like something that someone would think after doing too many tabs of acid, but he did turn it into a semi-autobiographical work in 1976, published the next decade, and then several decades afterwards, probably because the rights were so cheap, John Allen Simon, a producer whose two credits that I recognized was Howling 2 and the Getaway (laughs) remake with Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger. Oh. Don't know which is worse. I didn't see any of those. Yeah, no one did. But actually, I saw them both, but I shouldn't have. (laughs) When Jacob was watching Left Behind, you were watching those. I don't know these actors either. Obviously, we all know Alanis Morissette. We ought to know her anyway. Her second movie. Yeah, she was in Dogma, right? The Kevin Smith. Playing God, so why not? Much better actor when she doesn't talk. (laughs) Well, she was also on You Can't Do That on television, as we famously remembered. Yeah, (laughs) yes. Yes. Let's just get into it. Where do you guys stand on this? I got to say, she was such a popular figure in the 90s. To me, she felt like the commercial ripoff. I had liked a lot of cool art chicks that had come before her. And then when she had all her pop success, I thought, eh, you're the sellout. You're the less cool version. I was never a fan of Jagged Little Pill. I know you were more tuned into just a wide array of music, but like you had the whole Riot Girl thing happen in the early 90s. And I feel like, yes, this is the generic pop version of that that came out years later for the masses. And for those who don't know, she only had that one big album. The other ones didn't really sell as well. She had like five or six singles off of that album. And you could not escape Alanis Morissette the summer of 1995. It was everywhere. And even at the time when the other female songstresses out there like Natalie Merchant and other people, it was Alanis is Morissette's world. It was remarkable. People who owned this album already were still buying the singles when they released them. It was just remarkable. Her success. And then she was in Dogma and then she disappeared. And to have her come back here as an actress 
really kind of blew my mind in that, no offense to Alanis here, why? <laughs> why this project? Why pick her? She's not even the main musical act in this film, which blew me away. <laughs> I will say this. She was having a difficult time in Hollywood. She was the wife of a semi-popular Canadian actor, now better known as Deadpool, then known as Ryan Reynolds. Semi-popular. I hope Artie doesn't hear that. <laughs> I would say that in the late 2000s, his movies weren't that big a hit but uh, other than Dan Wilder but my point is he was considered a rising B-level star and then he got with Scarlett Johansson and she got dumped and maybe she felt like pushing herself she did write a new album of music that only her fans listen to <laughs> and yeah she started putting herself in acting gigs she did some TV and she was in the show Weeds for a little bit and then yeah she decided why not do Philip K. Dick weird sci-fi if i play god maybe i can play the voice of god you know her first big hit was about being dumped by supposedly dave coulier you would think that she could do a taylor swift and talk about a whole album about being dumped by ryan reynolds you must have missed a boat there that's just my little career advice there for you Alanis. <laughs> this is the best she could get and how good is it why don't we get into the movie brock i give you the unenviable task of trying to describe the plot and i'll be here for assistance <laughs> i did read the source novel i I do know what some of these scenes are meant to do. Not sure how successful they achieved it. Well, thank you, Stuart. And I appreciate you both giving me the opportunity to tackle this plot summary. I didn't see either one of you volunteer. Here we go. <laughs> In an alternate dystopian 1985, a Nixonian paranoid U.S. president named Ferris Fremont is obsessed with conquering a group he calls Aramchek and uses this to put the country in a police state, questioning the citizens and their loyalty to the government with military police and an investigative group called Friends of the American People, or FAPPERS for short, created to ferret out a resistance movement to the government. Family Man music executive Nick Brady is constantly having fantastical dreams, where he is in ancient Rome, for example, hearing voices and seeing imagery that is giving him directions on how to best live his life. The voices dubbed Valus, which stands for Vast Active Living Intelligence System, tell Nick to, say, apply for a new job as a music producer for a hot label and to move to Los Angeles. And he has one success after another following the instructions of these voices. He tells his dreams to his wife and his best friend, science fiction writer Phil, as in Philip K. Dick, the film's erstwhile narrator, whose quick acceptance of an open mind to all that Nick tells him help Nick try to make sense of it all. In one of Nick's dreams, he has a vision of a singer with a guitar named Sylvia, played by real-life 90s singer Alanis Morissette. Soon after his dream, the real Sylvia shows up at Nick's work for a secretarial job. Nick wants to sign her as a recording artist. And as they get to know and trust each other, she reveals she's also hearing the voices and was instructed to seek Nick out. She and her family have been in contact with Valus for years, and she fills Nick in that the voices are actually being beamed to him from a satellite orbiting Earth, put there eons ago by ancient aliens from the planet Albemuth. And he didn't fire her. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone's so accepting of everything everyone else tells them in this movie. <laughs> no one questions a darn thing. <laughs> The aliens from Albemuth have been instructing the human race through the satellite for all time, prompting Phil to theorize that this might be what humans think of as God. Sylvia also explains to Nick that her last name is actually Aramchek, 
and her grandmother tried to recruit the president for the Communist Party, presumably at the instruction to Velas, we'll talk about that, when he was a younger man. The president is fully aware of the satellite orbiting Earth and has it shot out of the sky. Meanwhile, Phil is visited by a FAP agent, Vivian, who is trying to get information on Nick. Phil plays along with her motivations as she tries to blackmail him, but she fails. Now that the satellite has been destroyed and they can't hear the voices anymore, Sylvia and Nick are motivated more than ever to lead the resistance movement against the government. Their plan is to release a song on Nick's label that has subliminal messages for the population (laughs) about the president. Oh, man, this song. (laughs) This is the plan. A pop song. (laughs) It's like we are the world, but not. (laughs) For the population about the president to help lead an uprising. Vivian and the FAP police find Nick and Phil find out the plan, execute Nick and Sylvia, and destroy the master tapes, and Nick's plan is defeated. Phil is again blackmailed into ghostwriting crappy science fiction to discredit his other writings, and eventually will be used to support the dictatorship. He is living at the end of the movie in a concentration camp like work prison, and he writes the real story of his friend Nick late at night on small pieces of paper. If that's a concentration camp, they got to concentrate harder. It is so sparse. <laughs> I took it like a concentration camp. It was like a prison camp. I really didn't know what it was. I tried to describe it best I could. That's fine. <laughs> Maybe Guantanamo. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. So uh, he's working on this late at night, and we've been watching his story of that he's writing out this whole time. But one day when he's on the chain gang, he hears Nick's song coming through a boombox of the pack of teenagers walking by. And Phil has new hope that Nick's life goes Goal will soon be coming to fruition through a new generation. So Philip K. Dick, as I already mentioned, has tons of stories, millions and billions of ideas that can be put out there. This one, I think you're already behind the eight ball, right? The, the fact that they're putting this out in 2014 radio as a major way of communicating with the today's youth. It is ironic because they start with the whole conversation like, CDs are going to take over vinyl. No, vinyl's going to win. I guess because this was 2010, they <laughs> knew vinyl was coming back. But yeah, obsolete media formats. Yeah, I mean, CDs? This takes place in 1985, guys. Well, yes. And so did the novel. I want to say that it was closer to the time that it was written. But yes, it was set in an alternative timeline that allowed Philip K. Dick to take liberties with known history. That basically he looked at history after LBJ and said, I'm going to do whatever I want. And and we'll have a character that's kind of like Nixon. Here, I think he's supposed to kind of be like Reagan and Nixon and whatever else. But yes, there's some liberty being taken with the known timeline. But again, you always want the story and the science fiction to have some kind of tie back to what's going on in the present day. Here, I just feel like this producer is working with whatever he had. He's like, I have the rights to the story. I can call these Canadian actors that have worked a lot in TV, and I have about a buck 25. We're going to make this movie. Really? Because it's the producer, director, writer. Like, this guy did everything, right? And I feel like, oh, he was a big fan, because I feel like there's no changes to the book. I haven't read the book. I just feel like if you're going to tell this kind of story, you don't tell it the way it's done here. I feel like this is a big Philip K. Dick fan, and one wanted to stay true to that novel. I completely agree, Jacob. I have not read this book at all, but I got the exact same feeling. It's like some guy had this pet project he always wanted to do. He maxed out his credit cards a la Kevin Smith and made his movie the way he wanted to do it. 
and we can see that in the lighting and the performances. The whole way this thing is presented is below budget, almost like a fan fiction kind of thing. Yeah, in Stephen King terrain, we call this the dollar baby. When illegitimate people make adaptations of Stephen King stories, he lets them do it. They mail in a dollar and he gives them the rights to make a non-commercially produced version. And this kind of feels like that. I'm kind of surprised this was released as a commercial project because it does feel a lot more like film theses that I've seen in film school. You're saying a commercial project. Exactly how did this get released? Because I'm like, why are we doing this before Total Recall? When I look it up on IMDb, it's 2010, not 2012. And then I read, oh no, they screened an unfinished version at a film festival and then finally released this, what, four years later on some kind of format, I guess? I'm convinced that if it wasn't Alanis Morissette, she is an icon. Like her or loathe her, she means a lot to people from the 90s. And so that is marketability. You can get people to go see a movie starring Alanis Morissette. You can? Yes. Even now, I believe that's something. Believe me, I used to work film markets. And it was amazing the kinds of lineups they would put out there. I one time saw a movie being made that had Florence Henderson of the Brady Bunch and Flavor Flav with, from Public Enemy. <laughs> So they're always happy. Any celebrity they can glom on to, do it. Let's make it with them. We'll make it work. Jean-Claude Van Damme and Lassie. I'd watch that. You know, like, it just doesn't <laughs> matter. And so you end up with weird concepts and a lot of movies that never get released. I've literally seen hundreds and hundreds of these kinds of projects or rather just seen the posters and the mock sheets for them and gone, oh, how cute. You'll never be a real boy. But this one did get released on video on demand. No one demanded it. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> we're here covering it because we're completists and because we have the spare week to do so. But nobody's asked for it. I'll go ahead and say this much. You guys are right to assume that this follows pretty much to the letter of the book. I more or less was okay with the book. I think that it was ultimately kind of sloppy, but there are some very cool Philip K. Dick things in it. And I do like the idea that this is a story that Philip K. Dick believes happened to him, but he splits it up between two selves. That he is both main characters in this. There is a science fiction writer named Phil. Obviously, that's Philip K. Dick. But he is friends with this idealistic younger man who believes that God talks to him from a space satellite. And both versions of that are the identity of Philip K. Dick. I think that he probably, on one hand, feels like many people will be like the skeptical writer here and not trust what Nick Brady is saying to be truth. Wait a minute, wait a minute. His friend Phil completely accepts what Nick is telling him is truth. You think so? Yes, I do. The skeptical writer is not skeptical at all. Well, he's kind of skeptical for like a minute. Okay, come on. I may be bringing a lot of that from the book. In the book, there was a lot more. He, here's the thing. He wasn't skeptical in the sense that he was rude. I don't feel like he said, you're crazy, man. But we did see in looks and asides to his poor wife, who stays married to him for decades but doesn't believe a word of this, that they both realized their friend could just be going insane. I rewatched the film after I watched this one because I wanted to be able to bring it up and talk about it to how it is. I don't know if you've seen a Bill Paxton film called Frailty. It's kind of similar in that it's people who believe God is talking to him and telling him to do awful things, unlike this film where they're going to just, well, they're putting out awful pop songs, so maybe it's as bad as murdering people that you think are demons. But there's a skepticism in that feel that I get. Like, that is such a horrific thing that these people are being asked to do here. Phil 
Yeah, oh, hey, God told me to move to New York. Feels like, no, okay, that's kind of weird. Like, I don't feel this Valus, this God, if this is supposed to be the struggle, like, is God really talking to you? They shoot their load here. They show us the satellite. There's nothing objective here. There's no reason to be suspicious, either from the actors acting and and the way Phil is reacting to things or from what we're showing. It's the fact that the special effects are so bad. (laughs) Maybe you could see that as, see, this is so hokey. It can't be true. This has to be subjective and all in his mind because no that just told me they didn't have money for this movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i think you're right i honestly don't think that played in the movie at all Stuart. and i really can't believe everyone's so accepting of this guy you said the wife was intolerable and kind of put up on on this they moved to la and her life is completely different now everything her husband wants to do they have a kid and all this kind of stuff never once does she say to him we have a kid we have a house you have a job. You have responsibilities. Where's that conversation? It doesn't make any sense at all. She seems completely... I understand you have to support your spouse if they're going through these kinds of problems. I understand that completely, but there also has to be the other side of the conversation that she has to show some sort of... Maybe she walks out with the kid. Maybe she can't live this way anymore. She seems completely accepting. Everyone's accepting of what's actually going on as actually going on, which is so bizarre to me. Or at least tolerant of it. Like, at one point when we find out Nick is going to go move to LA, Rachel's like, oh, I want to leave him, but I'm pregnant. So what you going to do? I, I guess in this alternate 1985, there's no divorce or child support. Yeah, let's talk about that because really sloppily integrated in here are these televised addresses from the president that we've had a president that's changed the constitution. He's been in office for five terms and he is basically slowly but surely eradicating free speech, all of our civil liberties to take action against a terrorist group he calls a Ramchak. I like dystopian Big Brother 1984 type storyline, so... Well, this is 1985. It's even better than 1984. It worked out for you, yes. Exactly, except it doesn't have the symbolism of 1984 being 1948, but whatever. So, look, I'm taking it kind of easy on this film because I dig the setup. Yeah. I'm with you. And I like the little things, like you'll see a shot of the American flag and it's obviously different. It looks like there's more stars. Maybe we finally let the Philippines become a state. (laughs) But there's not enough here because there's no money in it. And and so I like this world that they're going to tell me about, but I never get to see it, which is a problem. Yeah. They're going to go to his childhood house that the main character, we should just say, the first vision he has is a vision of himself from the future. It's like a ghost standing beside his bed. Which Rachel sees, his wife sees that, so there is no subjectivity here. I wish this film was more subjective, but we know that this is an actual ghost or hologram or something. But also, he also accepts that it's himself from the future very quickly. Never once did he doubt anything else. The only thing that possibly could be... Even though he didn't look older, as they call out. Right. There's nothing else it could possibly be that accepts it's him from the future. What the hell? I mean, that's my problem with this whole thing, is that... I agree with you. I was going with the concepts. I was giving the sandbox all the room in the world. At the beginning here, I was like, what's going on? It all makes sense at the end. Honestly, it really does. The film actually allows the people who actually pay attention to finish the movie to understand the whole thing. It comes together in my mind. But for goodness sake, especially early in the movie, how everyone could be so accepting is very Christian of them. Left behind. Yeah, I don't understand how it was possible that everyone thought the president, his obsession with Aramchek, they thought Aramchek was fictional. They thought that was a delusion of the president. That's the only thing they doubt is a ram check. No one else doubts anything else that they hear from Nick or anything else we hear. Well, there are miracles. I mean, or, or they're ascribed 
sort of like a miracle status. Case in point, their child, basically Nick gets hit by a blast of pink lightning and says... One of the funniest scenes in the movie, like, <laughs> because we had not seen that satellite yet. And all of a sudden they cut to this really bad CG satellite and this purple beam shooting out and like hitting this actor in the face. Yeah. And he can instantly say, let's take our baby one-year-old child Ezra to the doctor. Something's wrong with the scrotal sack. I mean, he's really, he gets very technical. <laughs> he's got a hernia. Yes. I just, I write down scrotal sack and I'm like, I don't want to know anymore. Just <laughs> fix him. And so the doctor is skeptical and he's like, oh, Oh, yeah, you are absolutely right. You diagnosed this properly. And even though it's a minor problem now, it could have killed him in a short span of time. So you saved his life. I think that is supposed to be the act that convinces both Phil, the science fiction writer, and the wife that Nick isn't totally bonkers. But I think what you're saying, what I am definitely going to say is, while these things work in prose, you have to dramatize in film. And that's why if I'm the producer, director, writer, pulling out my credit cards to fund this, I'm rewriting the script. I'm making it more subjective. I want people to question your hero more. That's drama. That's conflict. Those are things you want in a movie. That's why I call this Left Behind because that film is a very Christian movie made for a very accepting Christian audience that isn't going to question all the crazy stuff. And that's how this one feels. Although this is a secular Christianity. Yes, our main character is going to say, I identify with early Christians the fish sign, the persecution from Romans. Yeah, Jesus was an alien. Moses wasn't, they weren't aliens, but they were touched by Valus. All Judeo-Christianity has its roots in Valus. Yes, and this lowly record store employee is now the latest avatar, the latest incarnation. He's got to figure out what he wants to do with his life. And when the voice says, well, you got to go work for Progressive Records in LA, he moves from Berkeley, relocates down there, and here's the other thing I would say. When this was written in 1975-76, subversive messages and music was a thing. I mean, that was going on. The Beatles, all of that stuff. There was subjective tracks in the Exorcist movie. That was a thing to talk about. If you're talking about the music scene in 2014 or when this was shot, 2007, you have to update. You have to change. You have to act like the last 20 years of history happened. <laughs> Well, I'm not even sure what year are we in by like the end of this. It starts in 1985. This band they're going to get, this doesn't seem like an 80s band. And again, you could say this is an alternate timeline where kind of shoegaze rockers are the thing in 1985. It's weird. Well, wait a minute. The kid gets older, right? So we know years go by during the course of the movie. Yeah, I would say probably eight years pass. Maybe it's 93 by the end of this. Okay, they seem kind of Seattle grunge, so I'll, I'll give him it with this band, I guess. Even Nirvana didn't change the universe. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. I think it's a lot to ask of any pop song, no matter how popular, to literally cause a political revolution in which people storm the White House. This will be a premise that is very hard to take. But again, this is an alternative 1985 and more extreme. And so maybe people are going to have a more extreme reaction to it. I am going to say this. I was listening to this music in 1985. 
Actually, it was more like 1990. All of this was done by Robin Hitchcock. I don't know if you know him, but he's a Brit. Jonathan Demme made a documentary about him if you want to learn more. But he, for many years, wrote kind of twee British pop that in America was classified alternative because it wasn't Duran Duran enough. We called everything that. Yeah, that wasn't glam metal or or hip hop. Yeah, it wasn't glammy enough to be cool. He wasn't sexy, but he had the sort of a Beatles-esque songwriting. It's an interesting choice. I kind of like some of the music here. I'm going to go ahead and say I think some of the best parts of the movie is, no, it didn't change my life. No, I don't want to go attack Trump after I listen to this. (laughs) But I do think... The song craft is pretty good. Don't tell me Let's Party, though, is going to do anything for you. I liked that song. I did. I liked it. Okay. It reminded me of a Disney Channel tween show that they yes. had those songs on there. Miley Cyrus, Party in the USA. No, I, I think that's harsh. I'm thinking like Duff Cameron on there's that song on Livin' Maddie that for all those people who have kids that age. Oh, you've lost me. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> and you know what? Maybe you're making valid comparatives. For me, it felt like Robin Hitchcock songs like Balloon Man hit that I had on his CDs in 1989, 1990. Another question about this time in the book for you, Stuart, is I find it very weird. And I know Philip K. Dick, he was writing in the 50s, the 60s. He wrote a lot about paranoia about the communist. The fact that this is, again, 85, I know Berlin Wall, that's still up. But to still have that communist paranoia to the extent this film has it, especially because it's coming out in 2014, it seems out of place to me. Well, it's coming back in style again. We're definitely talking more about Russia than we used to. Yeah, I, I know. It's not the communists. It's just the Russians now. But but yes, to, to your point, it's a different kind of threat. It's not communism we're talking about when we're talking about Russia. Well, here's the thing that I don't think comes across very clearly at all. Some of the best parts of the book is just when this character, Nick, lays out his philosophy and the conclusions that he's come to and basically monologues for chapters at a time. And what he comes to conclude is that communism and capitalism are all part of the same oppressive force. And he speaks quite eloquently about how God is fighting against the shape that those forces are pushing mankind towards. And you get little moments like that in here, which I'm like, okay, this is going to get interesting. We're going to get some of that crazy Philip K. Dick philosophy, like fascism, communism, it's all the same. It's all tyranny. And Phil asks, you know, why does Valus, why would a God or this hive mind even care about us little humans? Like, yeah, you do get some tidbits here. I guess I wish there was more interesting sitting around and talking and not so much pop music. Actually, I had a problem with the sitting around and talking. There's a lot of scenes in this movie, especially with the three of them in the beginning, and then when Phil starts to visit him in L.A., that people were just sitting around talking. When you have the Vivian character come in to ask questions as a whole seduction scene, everything is people are just sitting and talking in bad lighting. I felt there was way too much of that going on. At the same time, though, I thought this did a much better job at conveying some of what we're calling, or what you guys already call, the Philip K. Dick philosophies of the actual work of Philip K. Dick. We just talked about how Total Recall completely missed it, the remake, especially totally missed all the concepts of what makes a Philip K. Dick story a Philip K. Dick story. I think this one, even though it was poorly presented in times and a little bit confusing at first in the first half hour, I think it did a really great job of giving the audience a different way of thinking and a window into the mind of Philip K. Dick, and unlike a lot of other adaptations of his work. Yeah, can you imagine what Lynn Wiseman would do with his $125 million on this movie? Yeah, it'd be quite something. That satellite would look better, I do have to admit that. 
that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And for that, I think, is why I'm more forgiving of all that is wrong. It's obvious from the get-go, this movie is undernourished. It's underloved. It can never be as good as a real movie. But because there are these core ideas that are interesting, can I just root for it as sort of like a community theater project where it's like, you ain't making it a Broadway baby, but maybe you can make it to the end of the show. And again, there's things like when they go to the president's childhood home and they find that a ram check spelled out in the cement and they're like, oh, this is a figment of his imagination. Again, that's a very Philip K. Dick thing where your paranoias and your thoughts are controlling you like that. But yeah, that's what's interesting. Can you do something interesting? interesting with this setup even though you don't got the money you don't got the acting you don't have the lights to give me anything good here can you do something interesting with that even in the book it's a little unconvincing because what we're going to get to is basically in this california suburb that our main character comes to live in that it's also the hometown of the current oppressive president he's able to unearth this secret meeting that he had with a communist union organizer. Because he met once with a lady who helped workers strike and get some of their demands met, does not mean to me that he's a closet communist. Or why did that cause him to be scared of the communists? We were told early that the president is ran by his imaginations of communists taking over. Like, yeah, I don't understand. Either he's a secret communist or he's so scared of the communists. Why, though? They never give me that either way. Forgive me for saying this, but I found communism in this movie to be a red herring. I didn't think it had to do anything to do really with the plot. I thought it was kind of a a tangent that was unnecessary to explain why the president may or may not be doing what he's doing. You know, it's more relevant in 76, obviously coming on the heels of the Vietnam War and Nixonian's underhandedness and handling some of that. I definitely feel like that was much more hot button. People had much more strong opinions about communist influences than even by 1985. No, I'm not disagreeing with that, Stuart. What I'm saying is in a movie filled with these alternate concepts that asking people to believe that in this world, people are actually thinking that God isn't actually God, but it's aliens speaking through people through a satellite. In a movie that has that kind of concept and is presenting that kind of concept to bring in communism and then not really develop it to a point of this viewer here is like, why even including that here? You didn't need to include that. You could actually have taken that away and the movie would not have been any different in my opinion. I hear what you're saying, but here's where they want you to reach. The big epiphany, much cleaner in the book, is the idea of ultimately people are better served by looking beyond other men, elected leaders, be they capitalist or communist, and looking to a higher power out in the universe. And so, really, it's not about communism per se. It's about the fact that we make these cult personality humans into gods when, in fact, the real gods are watching us from above and trying to help us, if only we'll listen. I love that idea. That's a great idea. I wish that was in this movie. Or at least if it was in that movie, I didn't get it. Yeah, it gets muddy because I get the feeling once we meet Sylvia and we find out she's in a Ramchek, it feels like her family, the Ramchek family, has been into Valus for I don't know, a few generations. I thought that Grandma Ramchek, who tried to recruit the president, supposedly, when he was a kid, I thought Valus made her a communist or something. Like, I, it gets very confusing. Yeah, it, that is not how it comes across in the book. And again, you understand very clearly in the book that political forces are the enemy 
of the voice of God. It's what Valus doesn't want you to listen to. They are steering mankind in the wrong direction. And so it really is, in a certain way, you're seeing a science fiction story in which faith is described as alien communion and everything else is oppression. It's human-made misery. And that's interesting, I think, if that's being dramatized. The problem is that the pushback, as you mentioned, Brock, that we're getting from science fiction writer Philip K. Dick is not that heavy. He may believe this guy, he may not, but he's not getting too worked up about it. You know, occasionally he cares because the government raids his files or some woman comes and tries to seduce him. But by and large, Phil Dick is just not an interesting, dynamic character. Although I do like the actor. I recognize this actor, and I looked up his IMDb, and I've seen some things. I, I like this actor. I don't know why he's not better here. Yeah, he's not good in this movie, but we've seen him in all kinds of stuff, including Fast and Furious franchise, the recent Kong movie Skull Island, Silver Linings Playbook. He had a memorable turn, Fargo Season 3. I actually looked up him on the IMDb page as well. I have seen The Wolf of Wall Street. I have seen the Fast and Furious movies. I have seen Star Trek Beyond. He is not memorable in any of these movies. I've seen nonstop. I have seen the movies he's in. And I have like, I don't know this actor. <laughs> no, he's got a face I instantly recognize. His resume is quite impressive. So good for him. This movie did not hold him back. It actually was a start of a wonderful career for him. And I do honestly wish him all the best. And maybe from now on, I will recognize him because he has such a big central role here. But I have to agree with Stuart. I didn't really care for his dynamic. He seemed to say every line the exact same way. And I kind of like the idea of that his friend is telling these extraordinary science fiction-y kind of things, and it would be really great. And although his friend tells him not to, he can use these ideas for his books. It'd be great. You know, you think he'd be a little bit excited about that. And he's not showing any sort of excitement whatsoever that his friend is giving him this treasure trove of ideas that he can, if he doesn't actually use verbatim, he can use as a springboard to write. Now, we see him writing on his typewriter throughout the movie, and he doesn't seem excited by any any of it and either a friend level or or as a writer i kind of get him as a writer you know if you read about a lot of especially single one you know the charles bukowski or something just this yeah he's gonna drink and hate the world and sit there with his typewriter and rage so i get the type but they don't do a good job of portraying that here and if you know Philip K. Dick's work, he's name-dropping a lot of things that Philip K. Dick actually wrote. So, again, to the fans, they at least know what he is working on when he's banging away on that typewriter. But it doesn't have any relevance to this plot. And I think you're right. What would make this more fun is if we felt like this writer was taking advantage of this guy. That he might be mentally ill and saying these crazy things... And his friend, rather than getting him help, is like, yeah, tell me more about Valus because I'm going to make a mint from my publisher. And then have him come around at the end realizing his friend was right all along. It could be actually something called an arc. Now, I don't want to change the story, Stuart. I don't want to say, like, the source material needs to be changed. But what I'm saying is the actor doesn't convey anything else but... Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, sure, okay, yeah, all right, yeah, it's great, okay, yeah, sure, okay, yeah, Valus, okay, yeah, it's good, good. Like, he's just so accepting, I don't get it. <laughs> I agree, there needs to be more of an arc for him, particularly. Yeah, he's going to have this whole run-in with Vivian. I don't know who Hannah Hall is, but congratulations, Alanis Morissette, there is a worse actress in this film than you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, is she bad. Grass makes me super horny. So when she said that line, my wife gets up from the couch and says, I'm done. And she walks out of the room because at this point, the movie was all over the place, right? And again, you, you really have to give it a lot of chances to get going. And 
with the bad acting and the lighting, she was already looking at her phone, but that grass line. Are we going to have sex or what? I don't want to have sex with you. <laughs> this is how you act. The thing is, she's supposed to be a femme fatale seductress. Like, I should believe, again, I'm going back to 1984 where Winston Smith is fooled and, you know, he's having this relationship with this woman and here Vivian's, she's just a fap agent. After they have sex, I think she's going to be like, oh, I'm 17. And I love how it's resolved. Like, Phil's just going to be like, he's going to grab her driver's license. No, you're not. You're 21. Get out of here. Yeah, they could have done something with that later. And they just resolved it awfully quick. I didn't understand why they even put that in there. I guess they were trying to go for some character or what they're willing to do to get the answers they want kind of stuff. But it didn't play at all. It's probably the actress playing the writing. That whole scene seemed difficult to swallow. Yeah, I think it's comedy. Honestly, I think what we're supposed to be getting out of this is I think this is the sex and laughter that, you know, is going to be more commercial if you're not totally buying into all of this alien Jesus monologuing here. But... Yeah, she's not very good in delivering it, and the director is not very good in integrating it with the rest of this movie. Here's the thing. I think a lot of these things are in this story this way because they're being faithful to a book that was largely autobiographical. Philip K. Dick wrote about these specific things because these specific things happened to him, or at least he believed that they happened to him. But when you're dramatizing things... You do change things. I do believe you have to change this book in order to make it work. And a case of point of where a filmmaker did something very similar was when they adapted William Burroughs' Naked Lunch. Cronenberg says, I'm going to make half of this a biopic and half of this a hallucination, sensory, crazy experience. And we'll marry those two and that will be the fun of going back and forth. Here, I don't feel like the hallucination moments are particularly thrilling, and I don't feel like this works as a biography of Philip K. Dick, nor as an exploration of outer space. And that was a disappointment, because once I realized, Phil, oh, this is Philip K. Dick, I realized that very early on, I was expecting, oh, I'm going to learn more about this writer in this film. Yeah, it is going to be part biopic. I, I don't know if you've ever read Timequake by Kurt Vonnegut. He writes that book as him having failed at writing that book. And so, yes, it'll like just stop and talk about like, oh, when I was trying to write this chapter and then this time quake happened. And so here's how we're going to move the drama forward. You know, it's, it's very satirical and funny, but I learned something about him reading that book. I don't learn anything about Philip K. Dick here, which was another disappointment once I realized, oh, he's putting himself into this story. You guys are reminding me of that uh, movie, that Charlie Coffin movie with Nicolas Cage. Adaptation. A little bit of that here could have gone a long way. I think you guys are onto something. Yeah, postmodernism, really go crazy. I mean, if one thing is the constant in the best Philip K. Dick, it's that the rug gets pulled out. You think you're seeing something, and then, wow, it's totally something different. And here, we just have to accept very early on that this man is hearing the voice of God, or what he believes to be a God called Valus, and he's just got a lot to say about it. And the movie just goes on and on as a repressive government keeps trying to shut him down. And they do different kinds of tricks. There's like an animated sequence that I don't know what they're going for, where the dragon, I mean, you know, and then there's some computer graphics that are Lawnmower Man-esque. None of that stuff, the hallucination. If you wanted to go into the Stargate of 2001 A Space Odyssey, this movie just cannot do that. They should know they don't have the budget to blow your mind. 
they can't go there. And so, yeah, hewing closer to an actual biopic probably would have been the thing to do. Another thing they could have done to pull the rug out from under us, cause some kind of suspicion. Again, I wish there was way more subjectivity in questioning Nick, is he has that dream or vision of Sylvia, and Alanis Morissette's just there jamming on that acoustic guitar, singing with her professional singer voice. And then when Sylvia actually shows up, she's just a secretary. She just wants a secretary job. And Nick is like, we gotta get you into the recording studio. I would have loved if they would have got her in the recording studio <laughs> and she couldn't even play or sing. Like That would have been a great turn. We would have doubted Nick then. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. You're right. We want to introduce doubt. The one thing that this movie is staunchly not doing is having us question our main character. What he's talking about does sound crazy. So why can't we question him a little bit more? We can ultimately come around to his side if that's what you want to do. But I think that not trusting your identity is the linchpin to making this work. And here's the thing about Alanis Morissette. I actually think she's kind of sweet at first. She's not a great actress, but there's something kind of natural about her that's fun to watch. It's as the movie progresses and she takes on more and more of the conspiracy and says, yes, I know all these secret things. And yes, we need to ladle pop songs with my poetry that's going to change the world. That's where she starts to fail. But at first, she's actually just kind of a likable presence. And they should have had more fun with her as she's yeah working at this recording studio. I agree with you. I didn't really mind her as much as you guys reminding her of all the bad actors in this movie she kind of stood out as being better than everybody else. I think she's the least embarrassed of anyone at the end of this. Yeah, but there are just weird moments in this film. Like, Rachel tells Nick, hey, Sylvia's waiting for you at this place. So Nick <laughs> goes, and they're talking about this pop song, you know, these great lyrics. Everybody's present at the party. What a grand chick. Like, <laughs> come on. But they're holding hands because they're so overjoyed with this great plan. And Rachel walks in and is like, aha, I caught you. You knew where they were. Like, now you're supposed to give me marital drama that like that's supposed to hold my interest at this point when it's it's just so bad then he puts her in the car and says you gotta trust me and she's like yeah okay yes. i'm like wait a minute wait a minute you're flipping and fl who, who is the one who has a problem here dealing with reality is it your husband or you <laughs> and i think that's the last time we see rachel like nick's gonna get me assassinated by the government and we never go back to rachel we never see where she is with her kid did you get the vibe that maybe phil wanted to get in on that action too like maybe part of the reason why he was hanging out was not because he his friend was talking truth but because he was like you got a hot wife and she's looking pretty lonely right now <laughs> yeah there's that scene at the beginning where she's like uh, i gotta stick around because i'm pregnant and i was gonna leave him and then i and phil gives her this look like you know we could hook up if you need some fun yeah all right so yeah it comes really late but eventually they realize the grand plan we've already mocked it a few times is we can write cool songs that are going to reach people and back it's the background singers right like the lyrics are banal pop ditty kind of stuff but yeah underneath all of that when you think you're hearing let's go to the party you're really hearing everyone can be a president you don't need to worship one president you can be a president which just confused me i'm like oh wait so the president's at the party are they revealing that he's at their ram check party i didn't get that <laughs> it was everybody's supposed to be the president but that goes with what you're saying with the themes of the book yeah exactly it's much i won't say much clearer it's clearer in the book <laughs> and here it's laughable it makes us think we're not supposed to take these people very seriously because obviously this is a bad plan and why the government would need to wiretap nightclubs and expose these men 
masters. You should just put that <laughs> track out. No, here's the thing that like this cracks me up. Like this great big brother government. Vivian goes in to like interrogate Nick about this song after they hear them discussing it when they were wired, and she's like, "We need to review this song." And he's like, "Well, we just have the demo. Well, give us the demo. Is it going to be the same as the master? Yes, it'll be exactly. It's not a demo then. It's a like like if you're been sound recording like that. That is just infuriating that they're calling demos and masters the same. Why would you go through all the work of mastering it for a demo? Also, <laughs> didn't they say at the end of that scene, oh, when can I have it then? Like next week? But wait a second. Aren't you like this police force? Just go in there and get it. Like, <laughs> yes. what is it? It could be ready? No, who cares when it's ready? Just take it. Yeah, they storm into Phil's house and tear up his file cabinet on the suggestion that maybe he's writing something subversive. But here they know they have audio proof that these people are plotting to put ideas into the songs that are going to make the youth storm the White House. And they're like, eh, can you get it to me by next week? All of this is just leading to a tone in which we're to wonder, is this a comedy? Is this a drama? Is this a religious film? Is it respectful towards Christianity? Or is it mocking it by turning it into an alien conspiracy? I think Christians, if you like Left Behind, I think they would dig this if you're okay with Jesus maybe being an alien satellite, which gets blown up. That, I guess, is what pushes the real conflict here, is the government finds a satellite that has been up there for thousands of years, and they finally get around to blowing it up, I guess. So, well, wait a second. As far as the mocking the Christianity aspect of it, I definitely got the religious aspects you were all picking up on. Of course, it's very difficult not to, except I was thinking to myself, would Catholics be upset with the idea that there's not a god, but it's an alien species? The way it's presented here, I don't think it's disrespectful. I think it was an idea that it, it's one way it could be. And I don't think it disproves or challenges anybody whose faith is strong. I think it's a wonderful science fiction concept. I really enjoyed the way they presented it here and how they treaded it lightly enough to not offend. I would have loved to seem like a Scorsese tackle this because his characters are always doing that. Not just in his religious films like Silence and Last Temptation, but there's always about people that just go on a vision quest. They believe in something and they're going to do it and it may be self-destruction. Sometimes you think these people are killing themselves and then you marvel when they succeed. I think walking that fine line could be some of the most exciting cinema there is. I can think of many examples where people act on faith and it looks both crazy and controversial and then turns into something very beautiful. And that's why this feels just more like Christian cinema to me. I don't want to knock it. It's just not challenging. It's there to reaffirm your faith. And I feel like, well, if you believe an alien has laid an egg inside of your head, that's going to hatch <laughs> when you die and you become an angel. Like, this isn't challenging. <laughs> and that is the problem for me. The fact that everyone's going to be round up, Vivian's going to have Nick shot. I do like how callous it is. Like, she gives the order to stop and they just shoot him anyway. And they're like, oh, too late. And she just shrugs. But she says an egg has been laid in his head, an alien egg. We always kill them before they hatch. So the government knows about Valus and about the aliens. What happens if these do hatch? Unfortunately, because the president isn't a character, I think that's a mistake. We go to his childhood home and we see a few of his White House broadcasts. But I definitely think the climax should have been him explaining these ideas and not his 20-something henchwoman Vivian. She's just not as interesting. But ultimately, if it's 
following what the book is, these are centuries-old battles between control and conformity and belief in a higher power. I thought about those Dune movies from sci-fi that we had to review, where it really becomes apparent that what that was all about was this man who believed he's being moved by God and he becomes a tyrant. And you get a lot of talking here, you know, don't trust human rulers. This is God-led subversion, which for this to come out post 9-11, God-led subversion, we've seen there's some of the results of that. Maybe not the best thing. Maybe we want to think this out more, like what that is supposed to mean and what is that supposed to look like. But I did think about those Dune films where people treated someone like a god and did horrible acts in his name yeah well in the later yes in the later books yeah that's an interesting series that's kind of what i was getting at earlier is that people can tell the story and make them compelling and then sometimes yeah when it's flattened to made for tv production values when there's just nothing visually going on that's interesting and the actors aren't working very hard to work through these conflicts i'm not feeling the spirit Who is? (laughs) But again, there's dialogue I like. There's this former priest in this concentration camp with Phil where he's secretly writing this whole story out. And I do love like this former priest is like, I've got my printing press stuff hidden away. (laughs) Really? Where? (laughs) Underneath the van you're sleeping in? Like you got Gutenberg press down there? But I like this talk where he's the jaded priest. He's like, what's the point of believing uh, this alien egg is going to hatch and you're going to go into a heaven when the, the world still sucks? Shouldn't you make the world better? Like, I think there's a good dialogue. And then they got the cheapest out because we find out, oh, the song really did happen. That all this weird Vela stuff matters for some reason. Yeah, it was re-recorded. I think what they're trying to get at is maybe much like the characters that are from religious text. Maybe they do die. Maybe they're not here to defend what they did. But there's always next generation that are going to take those stories, believe in them, and make them their own. And kids are going to love this. Yeah, it's up to the kids now. Those are some crusty-looking, like, goth rockers <laughs> playing some really bad pop. They look 80s to me. They look like a version of an 80s movie with the punk rockers, like, in a John Hughes high school. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And they would never... Maybe in a John Hughes movie, they'd listen to that music. Totally. They would, because they want to sell soundtracks, you know? <laughs> so, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Radio Free Albemuth? Jacob. I really did have to ponder this one, much like a lot of the religious debate that goes on here. What good is religion if it doesn't change the earth? What good is this, is this movie if it doesn't present Philip K. Dick's idea as well? But I like that his ideas are in here. Like you said earlier, Brock, that last week's Total Recall was devoid of what makes Philip K. Dick Philip K. Dick. And so I appreciate that is in here, that they attempted to get at those headier ideas. Ultimately, though, it's just not done very well. This production is cheap. The acting is bad. And so I'll be honest, I had to take a break halfway. This is a, almost a two-hour movie. I watched the first hour. I'm like, I just got to get a break from this because it's not fun to watch. It's not good to look at. It's just an ugly-looking, cheap film and then I came back and watched the second hour so even though the ideas are there and I like that conceptually maybe this will get a remake someday or maybe the man in the high castle is a better version of this and I should watch that on Amazon Prime but I'm gonna give this one a mild not recommend Stuart yeah I don't have hate in my heart but it's definitely not a recommend I mean ultimately comes down to the product itself no sense of humor no tension no style It feels and looks just like a thesis film from film school. I've seen this movie. And you know what? I don't put them in the same category. I feel weird putting this in a retrospective with Next and Paycheck because it is not competing in that level. I'd rather watch this movie than see Next or Paycheck again. If you're a fan of the book, 
This is very faithful. But I also feel like if you're going to adapt that book, you're going to have to work a whole lot harder than the filmmakers did here to make that relatable for modern audiences. There's just a lot of outdated concepts, and there's a lot of things that aren't very visually stimulating that you need to work into drama. And here on this budget, with these level of amateur filmmakers, you're just not getting anything better than a Philip K. Dick dollar baby. I've seen this kind of thing done much better, and I think I probably would endorse a movie that had more money and talent behind it. You could take this script, and someone could have worked it and made it into something recommendable. But as is, it's just kind of a flat amateur hour production that I think everyone will find easy to forget. And I saw the same movie you guys did. I did really enjoy, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the concepts that they brought up in the movie. At the end of the movie, I really was impressed that it all came together for me. That in the beginning of the movie, where my wife gave up on watching it with me because of all the production value things we're talking about, but also because a lot of stuff happened in that first half hour that was so disjointed and nothing really seemed to matter to the point where no one was questioning things. I mean, like, it, it, everything was so accepted. It was very hard to stick with the movie for all of these reasons. But if you do wait to the end, it does come together. It does make sense. Unfortunately, it's not worth the ride because of how it's presented, because of how it's acted. Everything about the movie just seems cheap. So it's unfortunate because I do think that this movie does something that a lot of the other movies in this retrospective series didn't do and stay true to why we're here. Philip K. Dick, much closer than last week's movie. Stuart, you said that you would rather watch this than watch Paycheck or Next again. And I would probably watch those movies again before this one only because I could sit through those easier. I, I had an easier time watching those bad movies yeah, they're professional. Yeah, it's just easier for your eyes and your senses, for goodness sake. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't recommend this movie. I'm not going to recommend this movie, but I want to echo what my co-hosts have said. It's not because it's a terrible movie like we've seen in other movies in the series. It just doesn't work the way it's presented. There are a lot of things here that do work, but as a whole, the parts do not come together to be a, a satisfying movie-going experience. It is very amateur. Yeah, if I saw this, honestly, my instincts as a producer would be like, oh, this is good. We should do this. You're all fired. Now I'm going to go find the people to make it. Yeah, exactly. I'm watching this. I'm like, oh, yeah, let's make this objective. Let's make us question the character. Yeah, I'm thinking about how you can make this really good. I was engaged in that way with Total Recall 2012. Well, I just thought about the other version that was already made that was good. Yeah, there's a good movie here, and somebody could have made it, but not these guys. Okay, so that wraps up this Radio Free Albemuth review. If you enjoyed this one, please go back and listen to our other Philip K. Dick series, you can find that in the archive section. Of course, you can also listen to Now Playing. And, of course, we have Now Peaking going on right now, which covers the Twin Peaks series with Stuart and Arnie and Jacob. So, guys, now we are at the point of why we came back to Philip K. Dick. Coming up for our next review in this series is... Blade Runner 2049. I've seen the preview for this. We have Ryan Gosling. We have Harrison Ford. We don't have Ridley Scott. He's kind of there, right? He's a producer or something. 
I saw his name in the credits. All right, but I saw the preview, and I got to say, there's potential here for something good. I'm excited for this one. I've seen both the trailers. I like Ryan Gosling. You know, I feel like he's kind of a Leonardo DiCaprio where, yeah, he did the notebook, and he's kind of got that reputation, but I think he does a lot of challenging stuff when he's doing noir-type films like Drive. I dig him, so I'm excited to see him, I guess, take on Harrison Ford. I like what I'm seeing. I think the imagery is very strong, and I think it's very much in keeping with the old movie, but the thing that most emboldens me is although it seems like they're capturing the language spirit that I really liked I think out of all of us I was the one that liked the original the most so I'm probably the most excited for this new movie but I also feel like they've got a different story to tell this won't be hey remember when this happened in the other movie there are things here to remind you of those replicants and that world but it sounds like they have a different plot it sounds like there's going to be a man-machine hybrid that could take this into new interesting heights and i'd be very surprised this movie didn't have its own moves we'll see when we get there in october i do feel like ridley scott with prometheus with alien covenant he does have this obsession all of a sudden with the next stage of man and man evolving and with machines so i'm interested to see where this one goes we talk about this throughout this series you know this is a sequel to the 1982 movie is this going to be based on anything besides the original concept of the movie or the original short story, are they taking any further concepts from any further Philip K. Dick works, or are they completely just doing a sequel to the 82 movie? Yeah, I don't think that this, although tied to the Philip K. Dick retrospective, is going to have much to do with Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, the source novel. Uh-oh, we didn't do Screamers 2 and 3 for that reason. Maybe we'll have to go back. <laughs> don't want to give listeners any ideas. Yeah, I don't want to think about that. I don't necessarily want to think about what we're doing in the meantime, either. Oh, no. I wish we could jump right to <laughs> the movie, but there are a few other things, a few things I want to see. I mean, Kingsman 2, I'm looking forward to doing that. We're going to do a live show, much like we did a live show when the first one came out. But what is this Inhumans, and why do I have to go to a movie theater to see it? Have you seen the wig yet? No. Oh, th- it's already not recommended for that wig. <laughs> I don't care how good it is. That wig is awful. It's a Marvel TV show that if I waited two weeks, I could just watch for free on ABC, but because I'm a sucker, I get to go to IMAX and pay $15 to see it two weeks early. (laughs) Arnie's going to have to tell us why we had to do this one, how it's going to tie into the Marvel Universe. Okay. And also happening on free Tuesdays, we have a couple birthdays. I'm getting a year older. Arnie's getting a year older. We always joke about the fact that we're the same age for two weeks, but exactly two weeks later, my birthday on September 26th, his on September 12th, we had a sponsorship. Someone has paid money for us to celebrate our birthdays by reviewing birthday slasher films. And so on September 12th, Happy birthday to me. I've seen this one. Yeah, or Arnie. Yeah, and that crazy Canadian movie from 1981. And then two weeks later, Bloody Birthday, which I know nothing about, but it will be mine. Neither do I. Yes. (laughs) That's coming up on our schedule. Plus, we're going to be getting into Death Wish. Five Charles Bronson films are going to be sprinkled throughout the next couple months where we're fitting them in. And we'll be starting up our donation series for the fall. You can go to our webpage, nowplayingpodcast.com, learn all about that. But in short, Phantasm, Cloverfield, and Hellraiser 
all through the rest of 2017. Hellraiser, one of the last franchises, big franchises we have to do. Well, Death Wish also. I mean, Death Wish is a big, big franchise series that we kind of glossed over. It's like Dirty Harry, though. He's kind of older than we normally do. Yeah, give us a remake and we'll get to it. Yeah, that's what we're doing. And so, yeah, that's a lot of things to see, some of which should be good. And eventually, two weeks after Kingsman, Blade Runner 2049. And of course, in the meantime, you can also hear our other Philip K. Dick shows or all of our other shows that are in our archive section at NowPlayingPodcast.com. You can hear Jacob Stewart and Arnie on Now Peaking, still going on. And we will be back next week with a brand new show. I won't be here, but you guys will be. You're the lucky one. Until then, <laughs> get your ass to Mars. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Time to die. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series. I have to hand it to you. It's the best mindfuck yet. Now that you've heard this movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Stewart's thoughts on Philip K. Dick's original work. Just because I write science fiction doesn't mean I believe in this stuff. I don't even think flying saucers are real. You can find the other episodes of the Philip K. Dick retrospective series at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archives section, as well as reviews of other classic movie series, including Predator, Terminator, Star Trek, Rambo, The Karate Kid, all the Avengers movies, Batman, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed can be found at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Look, this has not been one of my better days. So just give me my five minutes of machine time. You can also support Now Playing by making a donation using the donate button at the bottom of our webpage. Your donations help keep Now Playing on the air. Hope you enjoyed the ride! For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. Available there are series like The Matrix, the Quentin Tarantino films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Links to our Podbean page are available from nowplayingpodcast.com. I want more life, fucker. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lego Batman, Get Out, Galaxy Quest, Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Very few humans have seen what you've seen today, and we're determined to keep it that way. So, if you ever reveal our existence, we'll erase your brain. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. 
This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. It's like you know me. You can read me. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post movie mini-reviews, as well as new episode announcements. Links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. What does a scanner see? Into the head? Down into the heart? Does it see into me? Into us? Clearly or darkly? Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums, where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. I've had people walk out on me before, but not when I was being so charming. Now Playing presents the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series podcasts are produced by Arnie Carvalho. Come on, don't be mean to the one who does everything for you. The Now Playing podcast Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Who the hell are you guys? We are the people who make sure things happen according to plan. Now playing's Philip K. Dick series credits announced by Arnie. I've seen every possible ending here. None of them are good for you. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. The precogs are never wrong, but occasionally they do disagree. The film discussed in this podcast and all audio clips and music used are the property of their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the movie discussed in this show. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that book or film series. With any luck, this thing will just blow over. Not likely. Once the authorities open up a file on someone, they never close it. Now playing is copyright and trademark, Venganza Media Incorporated, 2017, all rights reserved. Do you think I'd let you leave without a kiss goodbye? Wait a minute, are we doing a Left Behind series you guys didn't tell me about? We've talked about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, we're not. But uh, much to Kirk Cameron's chagrin, or maybe he's lucky that we're not. But yeah, we're not covering that yet. Well, thank you, Stuart. And I appreciate you both giving me the opportunity to tackle this plot summary. I didn't see either one of you volunteer. Here we go. <laughs> hey, you, were, you weren't on the Lynch retrospective. This should be easy. <laughs> Yeah. No, I am not. But I did have to try to talk backwards for the credits of the Lynch series. <laughs> True. <laughs> okay, anyway, here we go. And an investigative group called Friends of the American People, or Fappers for short. Um. What? That's an unfortunate name. You know what the, that's slang for, right? No. No. Oh, I, I guess I'm the young hip one here. I don't know when the term rose, but fapping, it's masturbation. Oh. oh. I just cracked up every time. That might have even been intentional. That sounds like uh, Philip K. Dick humor. No, no, no. This is this is a current, like, this is a term that's risen up in maybe the last five or six years. It was not around oh. in the 70s. I was fapping long before it was cool. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> you just weren't calling it that. The voices dubbed Valus, which stands for Stuart. Oh, shit. Um... Aha, gotcha. 
I don't know it by heart. Vast active living intelligence system. I got it written down. <laughs> I have it written down too. I was, I was, Stuart said he's going to be there to help me out. I just thought it'd be fun to throw it at him. <laughs> oh, you got me. Yeah, I'm saying I love the book. So, Jacob, Stuart, do you recommend album, album, 